If he just came tonight, we're in a series called The Comeback. And it's been such an amazing thing for me because I'm, I'm learning and we're learning that our whole story is a story of comeback. You know, this whole book is the story of human beings intersecting the story of God, and every single one of them had some kind of a comeback. Everybody in the story of God has a comeback story. That means all of us have a comeback story. And if Jesus is truly alive from the dead, which he is, by the way, and if he's here because he said, wherever two or three of you come together in my name, I'm going to be right there in the middle of it. So if those two things are true, if Jesus is alive from the dead, and if he's here in this place, and if you're alive and you're here, then anything's possible, and anybody in the building tonight can have a comeback story. It's not too late for you to have a comeback story when Jesus is in the equation. And I know that sounds like a bunch of preacher talk. But I want to make sure that you're not the only person sitting in here thinking, you know what, this is for somebody else, and I saw the people's video, and it seems like God's doing some amazing things. But the enemy's slipped in, and he's deposited a boatload of hopelessness into your world, and you've sort of got that thing going on, like everybody else can probably have a comeback, but I don't know if I'm ever going to have a comeback. I want you to know that if Jesus is alive from the dead, which he is, if he's conquered death and hell, which he has, and if he is present in this place and you are here, it is possible for every single person in the building to have a comeback story. Are you with me out there tonight? Hello? It's possible for every single person to have a comeback story. Not because I say so, but because Jesus is alive. And wherever Jesus is, the power of Jesus is. And Jesus has got incredible power tonight to free us in our lives. The message tonight is you can always come back. The story that we're looking at, um, particularly tonight, is found in the book of Judges, if you want to work your way there. It's about a um, third of the way into the Old Testament, the earlier books in Joshua, Judges. And if you can land in Judges, this particular story that we're looking at is a, a, a tragic story with a, with a beautiful ending. And it's this kind of a collision of life, something that I think everybody in this house can relate to in some way, shape, or form. Maybe particularly tonight, somebody, but, but generally all of us can relate to this specific story. And in this account, uh, Israel is in trouble. And I don't know if you've read much of the Bible, but Israel was always in trouble. <laughs> um, they had, they had a, a history and a way about them where God would work powerfully. God would provide miraculously. And then as soon as the coast was clear, they would all turn to their own way and start doing life the way they wanted to again. And they would end up in all sorts of trouble and all sorts of difficulty. And oftentimes when that happened, God would purposefully let them become um, subject to another nation and to some other rulers sort of to shake them down out of them, themselves and shake them to the bottom again so they could come to the end of themselves and say, God, we've really messed up again and we really need your help. And then God would pour out his mercy and his grace and his favor and restoration on them and he would lift them up again. And this was the story of Israel time and time and time again. If you're wondering, you're kind of like, what's wrong with you? Well, we all come from a long line of people who have a tendency to rebel against God's ways as soon as it gets going our way. And then we end up in a predicament. And God will, as he did with Israel, let us get under the rule of somebody that we don't want to be under in a circumstance we don't want to be in, in a situation we never dreamed about being in. Why? So that that situation can squeeze us and shake us down so that we can get over ourselves and get to the bottom where at the very bottom we say, God, I've really messed up and I don't know what else to do and where else to turn but to you. And then God can do what God really wants to do in our lives, which is pour his mercy and his grace and his favor and his restoration on our lives. And that's where God wants each one of us tonight. And so for a lot of us to get there, we got to go through the shakedown. Now, we can, we can wise up and take a more direct route tonight, but for a lot of people, you have to go through the shakedown because that's somewhat human nature, and that's where Israel was in this particular place. If you look in chapter 13, verse 1 of the book of Judges, it says this. It says, again, so there's our key word, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This was a pattern for them. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, there couldn't be anything worse if you were an Israelite 
than being delivered into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. It'd be like if you were a Georgia fan and you'd sort of messed up your life and they made you go become a Florida Gator fan for 40 years. For 40 years, you had to go live in Gainesville, wear an alligator costume, and go to the swamp every single weekend and do the chop. And you had to do that for 40 years. That's kind of sort of similar to Israel being ruled by the Philistines for 40 years. The situation here, you know there's always this dreaded conflict. I mean, even from when David was a little boy, he went up to serve his brothers and to take them food as they were on the front lines of battle fighting the Philistines. But Philistines had LeBron James, you know, they had the Old Testament version of the biggest guy anybody had ever seen before. And Goliath was so formidable that even the men of Israel were shaking in their armor. And because of his power, he would taunt the God of Israel. And then David comes on the scene, you know the story, and he's like, look, I believe God's bigger than that guy, and I might not be very big, but God's bigger, and I've been out with the harp and the lyre under the stars, worshiping at night with the sheep, and I've come to know that there is a great God who's made the world and made that big guy, and before Goliath knew what happened, a rock hit him square between the eyes, and he went face down, and little shepherd boy David had a fierce streak in him, and he drew Goliath's sword and chopped his head off. And that day, the, the, the whole army of Israel is carrying little David around on their shoulders and having a, a celebration because the Philistines were on the run. This was the history of the people of God and the Philistine people. It happened many, many times through Scripture. And now, as again the people of God have disobeyed him, he has delivered them, God delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So can I take a small time out here? If you are in a really, really difficult place, you may have gotten there because God put you there because some act of craziness in your life. And he said, guess what? Your next stop is going to be the last place you want to be because that's the best place for you to come to the end of yourself. And so you can curse the place you're in or you can remember that it's your own fault that you're in the place you're in. And you can take a shortcut right now from the place you're in instead of cursing it and cursing God of saying, oh, it was me that got here in the first place. So can I trade in the alligator costume and can I come back to you? And you can take a direct route through the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus tonight by your own act of repentance, and you can get back on track faster than maybe the normal way. But for 40 years, these people are under the Philistine rule, but God is a God of mercy. Can we just believe that tonight? God's a rescuer. God's not an evil, mean God. God is a saving, graceful God. And he wants to deliver his people. And so it says in verse 2, he has a plan, God does. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. You say, why is all this in the Old Testament? Why do we need to know that a guy was from Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites who had a wife who was sterile and remained childless? Because God's always setting up comeback stories. And so God is saying, I want to deliver my people now from the Philistines. I do want to restore them. I do want to bless them. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to raise up one of the judges. And I'm going to set a new leader over Israel. And guess what, Manoah? He's going to come from you. And Manoah's like, "Uh, I think you got me mixed up with somebody else because my wife is sterile and she can't bear children and this is not going to work out. And But lo and behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. And that's what she did. This comeback story started with a comeback story. That's pretty amazing. And what it says to me tonight is your comeback story is going to trigger somebody else's comeback story. Your comeback miracle in your life is going to set in motion God's comeback for somebody else's life. And when you come back to Jesus, it may be God opening the door for a whole nation to get delivered. It's never about you, and it's never about me in the economy of God. It's always about God and his glory and his work on planet Earth. So we might be sitting in the chair, and the first thing we need to do tonight is go, hey, it's not all about me. It's not all about my issue. It's not all about my deliverance. It's all about God's purpose and plan in the world, and he needs to get me moving into his plan. Because I'm a part of a whole bunch of other people moving into his plan. Can I just say it a different way in case it's not coming across? There may be five million people waiting for you right now to get your heart right with Jesus. 
Who knows how the dominoes are going to go out of your seat from tonight and touch the people of the world. But we live in such a me-centered world. Everything, including Jesus, revolves around me. And God is showing up to Manoah and to his wife and saying, hey, I know you've been praying and I know you need a comeback story and I know you having a baby is gonna be your comeback story. They're gonna make a video of that and show it at Passion City Church. You know, we were sterile and childless and an angel appeared and said we were gonna have a son and we had a son. Amazing story. But your comeback story is gonna be somebody else's comeback story. They had a little boy and his name was Samson. And it says in scripture that God was with him. It says at the end of the chapter, he grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana. God was with Samson. And so I think most people know the story. We can sort of jump to the end of this story. If you, maybe you just got to church tonight, you probably still know the story of Samson and Delilah and how that story went down. But the two main themes of Samson's life were these. He was born of God through these parents, but purposed by God to do something phenomenal for the people of God. He had incredible calling on his life, set apart to God, and he had incredible power on his life. Uh, All through the rest of the stories that unfolds, he did amazing things. Uh, In in one case, he killed a lion with his bare hands. Um, So that's pretty cool. Um, In another case, he killed uh, 30 guys by himself. Um, And it's okay in the Old Testament to kill 30 people by yourself. That doesn't sound all that great now, but kind of different era in a different economy. But um, he also, it says at one point, um, after the Philistines had had done something really terrible to his family, um, that he caught 300 foxes. Now, I don't want to catch one fox. You know, they probably have rabies. You know, who wants to go out and catch? a fox, you know? He caught 300 foxes. He tied them in in pairs, their tails together. He put a lit torch between their tails, and he set them off through the fields of the Philistines, and the 300 foxes with their tails on fire burned down the crops of the Philistines. Now, you would have never thought of that one right there. See, God's got some interesting ways going, and Samson did that. How do you catch 300 foxes? How do you tie their tails together? How do you keep foxes down while you tie their tails together and put torches in their tails? This guy had unusual power. It says in one occasion, he took the jawbone of a donkey and he struck down a thousand Philistines with it. So they dreaded Samson. They were fearful. He was the Goliath. They were shaken in their boots because of Samson. He had unusual power and favor from God on his life, but he also had a struggle. And as powerful as God's anointing was on his life, in the same way he had a powerful struggle on the inside of his heart. And his particular struggle was a struggle with women. And it started out early for him when he said to his parents, I want to marry this Philistine girl. And against good advice, he did it anyway because he was Samson raised up to be the judge. No one wanted to kind of get in the way. And then as we see the story unfold, he has a systemic pattern of falling into the temptation of women. And so two things are rolling. Outwardly, a lot of God favor going on and God using him, which is kind of a mysterious thing for us to get our heads around. But internally, a storm's brewing and the winds are picking up and and all of a sudden a hurricane's forming inside of him. And it's getting over warmer waters and with more destructive potential. And both these things are happening in Samson's life at the same time. And then we start seeing the, the conclusion coming in verse, I mean, in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says a little bit later in the story, he went to one of the Philistine towns, Gaza, and it says where he saw a prostitute and he went in and he spent the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson's here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. But it says in the story that Samson got up in the middle of the night and he snuck out in the middle of the night. It says on his way out, he grabbed the gates and the the bar of the city gates and he ripped them out of the city wall and put them on his shoulders as he was leaving the city, kind of as a way of saying, hey, I wouldn't wait till morning and I wouldn't mess with me because I've got this unusual power on my life. But then it says a few verses down, the story changes a little bit. And this is the part of the story everybody is more familiar with. It says in verse 4, Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek. 
whose name was Delilah. And the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So a couple little things, if you just back up and dig around in this verse a little bit. Number one, it says he fell in love with this woman who was in the valley of Sorek. And the only reason that's important is because the Philistines' land and the part of the tribe of Israel's land, this valley was sort of in the in-between place. And it's just saying to us on a real practical level that there's some places we don't have any business going. There's some areas that we don't have any business traveling in. But in this particular place, he saw this woman and he fell in love with her. And I'm sure this had happened a couple of times before. I don't think this was a one-off. I think this was the history and the pattern of Samson's life. And when he saw Delilah, he said, oh, wow, I got to have that woman right there. She knocked him for a loop and he fell in love with her. And interestingly enough, do you know what Delilah's name means? Delilah, if you get all the little root meanings of that name Delilah, two of the words that come into play there, one is low and one is hanging. In other words, it's as if, as clear as a bell, the enemy, knowing that Samson has this internal temptation going on, this internal struggle that's building force on the inside, and, and the enemy says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put some low-hanging temptation right where you can see it. I'm going to put Delilah right in your grasp. I'm going to put Delilah right in view for you, and that's what the enemy does. The enemy's not coming to us saying, hey, I want to wreck your life, but you got to learn how to jump over the Empire State Building. No, the enemy's saying, I know what your weakness is. I know what your particular temptations are, and I'm really good at putting low-hanging temptation right in your grasp. And so Delilah appears when Samson's in a place he really doesn't need to be in in the first place. And he falls in love with her. A little side note here. There's a couple of side note messages tonight. Be careful who you fall in love with. Because once you fall in love with someone, your better judgment can totally get overwhelmed by your emotions. And that's why it's important that you do not buy the lie. I know she's not that, and I know he's not this, and I know maybe it's not God's best, but you know what? I can can work on that at a later time. And I'm just kind of getting closer and closer and closer. And before you know it, your emotions click in and kick in. And when they do, it overwhelms your best sense of judgment. And all of a sudden, you're in, in a relationship with somebody that you really, honestly, if you thought about it, would have never been in. And he fell in love with Delilah. And now the Philistine leaders are like, hey, you got to figure out how to help us get this guy. And so she did, and it's a, it's a bold move. You know, you're thinking she might come to him and, you know, come like through the back door, but she just comes right out with it. I want to know the secret of your great strength. <laughs> and you're thinking if his Samson's going, wait a minute, time out. I'm already in inter- enemy territory here, and um, I, you're wanting to know my strength. Why do you want to know my strength? I wonder if you're getting paid off by the rulers of the Philistines. I wonder if this is a setup. But he thinks, I can handle it, so he plays along with her. He says, well, if I get tied up by brand new bowstrings, then, um, uh, I, then that, that's what will do it. That's my secret. And she's like, all right. So he goes to sleep. Apparently, he's a heavy sleeper. She gets brand new bowstrings and ties them up. And then as he's tied up, she says, Samson, quick, the Philistines are coming. And he wakes up and poof, breaks the bowstrings, and off he goes. And she's like, oh, now, Samson, why'd you do that to me like that, honey? <laughs> Sweetheart, come here, baby, you know. Come, come to me, baby. Why, why'd you do that? Now, now, really, come on. Let's be serious. What, what's the secret of your strength? And he says, oh, I know. It's not the bowstrings. It's brand new ropes. If you'd used brand new ropes, that's what would have held me down. And she's like, oh, okay, sweetheart. All right, honey, bye. And he goes to sleep. She gets brand new ropes and ties them up. She's got a thousand shekels. She's thinking, I like Samson, but I like a thousand shekels a whole lot better. And she says, hey, hurry. The Philistines are coming. He wakes up. <laughs> ropes are nothing. And then she's like, you did it to me again. Come right here. Now tell me. He said, okay, seven braids of hair. If you weave them into the weaver's loom, that's what it'll do. Do it, do it. And so he goes to sleep and they get the weaver's loom and they start weaving his hair into the loom. And once they get his hair, can you imagine this? And once they get, he's a heavy sleeper. Once they get his hair woven into the, to the loom, 
she says, quick, Samson, the Philistines are coming. He wakes up, blows up the loom. You know, there goes one good loom. I mean, you should have told her ahead of time, I wouldn't do that unless you got a spare loom, okay? Because this isn't working out. And so now three strikes, and she's just mad now. And uh, she says to him what, what you can hear kind of a woman saying down in verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? What? And all the men said? And all the women said, This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Now, you see how, where this is going, right? You understand where this is headed. Three times now, she's been made a fool of. This is not a good plan. And he's thinking he's got everything under control, but he doesn't know who he's dealing with. And so it says in the, in the next part of the verse that with, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. No, don't say amen there, man, because you're going home with her. And this is really not about us versus women or even him versus Delilah. Now things are shifting and the picture's getting a little bit bigger. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So verse 17, he told her everything. No razor's ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. And as soon as she heard this, when he went to sleep, she told the Philistines, got one more shot here, and I, I think this is the one. No telling what kind of pressure she'd put him under to get that information out of him. And she says, I think we got it this time. And Samson goes to sleep, and they bring in someone to shave off his hair. And she says, Samson, quick, the Philistines are coming again. And he wakes up, but the scripture says he didn't know that God's power had left him. And he tried to do it. He always did. And he tried to shake it off like he always did. But this time it didn't work. And they overtook him and they subdued him. It says they put him in shackles and in chains. And they took him to the prison and chained him to the prison mill. And they gouged his eyes out and made a spectacle out of him. Eventually... The hurricane got up to force strength, and a major crash happened in Samson's life. Called by God and set aside by God from birth to be a judge for the people of God in their time of great need. But yet now, crashing and burning with his eyes gouged out and shackled to the Philistines and in the Philistines' prison, pushing their mill. Even though he had great external calling, an external purpose of God, an incredible external power from God, the internal engine that was continuing to drive him toward these relationships with women time after time after time, finally caught up with him, and now Samson's life screeches to a halt. And there's a couple of things that just obviously sift up to the top that I want us to to settle with today. And some of this is very specific today. Some of this is just reading your story today. Some of this is your script. And you're already a little edgy because you're like, okay, I I already, I mean, I'm done. I already know how the sermon ends today. But all of it for, for all of us is very applicable today. No matter where we're coming from, all of us are in this story today. And the main, thing, the main things that sift up are these. The first one is this, that Samson was always focused on the external exercise of God's power, but he missed out on the internal exercise of God's power. He was always thinking about what God was going to do in somebody else's life or what God was going to do in, in some other situation, but he never tapped in to that same power of God to say, I've got an internal situation going on that's going to bring this whole thing to a screeching halt. And God, as much as I've needed your power to kill a thousand Philistines, I need your power to fix me. 
And he never was able to get to that place of saying, it's not just enough that power goes out from me. I need the power of God to work in me. And that's where a lot of us are living today, right? That's where a lot of people in this house are living today. I've heard of God's great power. I've heard of God's great fame. But it's a different thing of saying, I've heard God can do great things, to saying, God, I need you to do a great thing in me. And there's a really weird thing going on here, and I, I guess everybody sees it, but just to say the obvious, God was still using Samson even when he was having some internal struggles. I've never really fully grasped that completely. But he was still operating in some of the gifting and power and calling that God had put on his life, even while internally he was struggling in this tornado, this hurricane was brewing in his heart. And that's what God is really wanting to help us get around today so that we don't trade the immediate for the glorious in our lives. When I was in seminary, I had a lot of odd jobs across town to make ends meet and make you know, a little bit of money here and there. And for a while, I worked for a house painting company that my buddy uh, owned, and he got me into it. And I like to paint, so I thought, okay, this will be great. I, I kind of actually like anything that looks like you start here, and at the end of the day, you know, something's done. That's kind of in my wheelhouse. So I went to the first job, and it was in Fort Worth, Texas, where I went to seminary. And I remember the first house we went to, because it wasn't a huge house, and the guy wanted his house and his garage painted. And I thought, man, we're going to be able to knock this out, because there was three or four of us. And I thought, Okay, this is going to be a one-day job right here. So I'm thinking we're going to paint today. Well, lo and behold, and some of you are ahead of me here, uh, painting is not all about painting. And so we get uh, sanders and um, sandpaper and wire brushes, and we're instructed to go and take all the paint off the house. And I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't know. You should have said, do you want to come be a sander? I thought you hired me to be a painter. I like painting. I don't really love sanding, okay? So we're up there sanding, and it's a guy's house. And you know how the power line used to come into the corner of your house in the old days, and there's a little thing around the deal and behind the gutter, and so I'm up there with a brush. But, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, I think that's good. All right, and then we're over here on the front. And the part right in the bottom where eye level, yeah, we're sanding a little bit harder. But the guy that owned the company, he was a, he was a really interesting guy. He wanted to build his business on integrity. Imagine that, you know? He's like, we're going to be the best painters in Fort Worth, Texas. We're going to be the best painters in the Metroplex. This is how we're going to build our business. And I'm like, hey, I'm your guy. I'm a great painter. So he says, no, no, no. Painting is about stripping down the house. That's how you do great painting. Because you know what? You can come in and and do a quick paint job, but in in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, where it's 190 degrees all summer long, I mean, it gets a little complicating. And so um, we're, we're working. And so the whole first day is sanding. I've never been so sore and so tired and so frustrated. I don't care what he's paying me per hour. It is not enough. And we come back the next day, and I'm thinking, okay, get the cans out, get the rollers out, get the stuff out. Let's start painting. He's like, no, going to do a little more sanding today. I've got here early, and I've looked over the house, and we need to do a little bit more work. His, his motto was, take it down to the wood, boys. He's always, take it down to the wood. So he's walking around the house, and you know, you're up on a ladder hanging off for your life, you know, 20 feet above the ground with your left hand up behind something that's going to electrocute you. And he's like, all right, no, 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 right over there, right over there. Take it down to the wood. Take it down to the wood. And I was like, yeah, I want to take it down to the wood, all right. I'm going to come down from this ladder and take something else down to the wood. And he was just like, take it down to the wood. I have nightmares sometimes. So take it down to the wood. Take it down to the wood. We spent four days on this house, never opened a paint can. And then by the time we got ready to paint it, it was like, whoo, paint, done. And the reason why he was so determined was because we could have come in in one day and painted the house, and it would have looked fantastic for about four months. And then it would have just all flaked off again and been a bigger mess than it was when we got there and a waste of time and energy. And that's what God's trying to say to us through Samson. Hey, I can do great things, but you need to get this idea in your mind. We gotta take it down to the heart. We gotta get down to cases here. You can't just keep sitting in church hearing sermons and sitting in Bible studies, opening little books and talking to your friends about blah, blah, blah. At some point, you gotta say, you know what? I need God to step into my life and take it down to the wood because what you see isn't the real deal. We're showing up at church and we're holding up our little church exterior, showing up at our little Bible studies and we're being a little bit vulnerable, but that's not going to work and there's not going to be freedom and there's not going to be a breakthrough and you're not going to do what God has put on your life to do unless you're willing to let God get into the inner space of your heart and say, hey, there's a hurricane brewing in here and we got to go all the way down to the wood." And let God's power start working right there.
I think the second thing that lifts up for me in this story is that Samson tried to hold out when in fact Samson needed to get out. Samson was deceived because he didn't get taken out on day one. And he was deceived by the fact that he thought he knew how to play the game. And so he just kept holding out. Probably not supposed to be with Delilah, but bowstrings didn't hold me down. Probably not the best relationship for me to be in, but you know what? The ropes didn't hold me down. And probably not the best choice for the servant of God, but you know what? The loom couldn't keep me trapped. And what the enemy was doing in his life is what he does in our lives. He says, you know what? Just because I didn't take you out tonight, don't you think that I'm not a patient foe? And I'll wait you out. And then I'll take you out. And a lot of us are living in that, that moment, right? I'm sort of managing it. I hadn't completely blown up. Somehow I'm, you know, figuring it all out. And somehow we make the mistake of thinking that if Satan can't take us out on night one, then he'll just give up and go find somebody else. And you need to understand that Satan will wait you out 50 years. And then he will take you out. And a lot of times we get in there, well, I'm managing it, I'm managing it. I'm managing it, I'm managing it. Somehow I'm holding out and holding out and holding out and holding out. And I, I just am a human being tonight on, uh, today on behalf of God saying that today is your day to get out while you can get out. To get out of that relationship, to get out of that, that habit, to, to get out of that space that you're dabbling in, to get out of that little valley between the, the, the people of God and, and the Philistine camp, that little middle ground place where you sort of started putting a little few feelers out. Because I'm telling you, we're living in, 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 in a very challenging environment for all of us. And I, I don't know many men on planet Earth who don't understand Samson's life. If you're, if you're in this house today and you don't understand Samson, then God bless you. You, you are a man of great favor somehow from God. But I, I would have a feeling based on the relationships I've had with the men I've been close to in my lifetime, I don't know, I could count on, on less than one hand the men I've known in my life that I've been really close to in honest relationships that didn't in some way struggle with temptations and thought life. And I would dare say that that's true in this house right now. And I would venture to say that a lot of men sitting in these rows can understand this guy right here. And then we got all kinds of opportunity. We got computers. We've got opportunity. You don't have to go to Gaza and go to a prostitute's house. You can, she can come to your house on your computer. And I don't know about the ladies. I'm not a lady and I don't get into these conversations with ladies, but, but I'm sure you guys are all above reproach and loving God and you don't struggle with this. So I'll just keep it with the guys. But I have a feeling that the enemy is brewing some hurricanes and he's convincing us that just because we made it through the night that we're going to make it through the journey and you must remember we must remember today that there's an enemy and he's very patient he'll put the low hanging fruit down just in the right spots and if you do what Samson did you kind of create an environment where there's no accountability for you then you're headed to disaster. And today God is saying, it's not about holding out. It's about getting out. You need to get out of that relationship today. You need to get out of that, that place today. You need to get out of that habit today. You need to get out of the closet today. You need to get out of the secrecy of the dark today. And that little place that nobody knows, you need to get out of that today. It's time to get out while you can still get out. You know, accountability is interesting because in our culture, in our Christian culture, if you're new to church, you're probably better off than the rest of us in this. 
But what we've done in church culture, we've turned everything into a group. If you want accountability, you get an accountability group. Well, I tell you about a lot of people who've been in accountability groups and they've crashed and burned because they didn't want to be accountable. You don't get accountability by being in a group. You get accountability when you say, I want somebody to help me so bad. I want to honor God so much that I'm going to open the door for you to be in my space with me. And you are only accountable when you want to be accountable. You're only accountable at the day that you decide to be accountable. This is a scary place today, and I know sort of camped out for a minute, but hey, you know, it is what it is. You, you can only be accountable if you want to be accountable, and no one can help you if you don't want to be helped. No one can save you if you don't want to be saved. Jesus can't save you if you don't want to be saved. If you're not willing to say, I'm not just going to try to, to keep getting through, I'm going to get out, then no one can help you. And you can join an accountability group and they can't help you either because what they're seeing of you is what you want them to see of you and until you're willing to let people see you, then you're not at that place that Samson so desperately needed to be at where he said, you know what, I'm on, I'm on a road to some serious disaster here and I gotta get out of her house while I can get out of her house. While I got two eyes to see the door, I need to get out of this place. The third thing that kind of lifts up in this story is that Samson became a laughingstock. It says in verse 21, the Philistine seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Interesting. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. And then look down to verse 23. It says, now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Now, Dagon, we've talked about him, uh, but Dagon, I'm talking about him, it. uh, (laughs) Dagon is not a him. He's an it. Dagon was a, a stone idol that the Philistines worshiped as their primary God. And this had happened over and over. You remember when they captured the Ark of the Covenant, where did they take it? To this same temple. They took the Ark of the Covenant of God to that same temple and set it in there in a way of humiliating the God of Israel by the God of Dagon. But when they came back the next day, the God of Dagon had fallen over in front of the Ark of the Covenant of God because God doesn't like to get humiliated. And so the men of, of the Philistine camp said, hey, oh, something happened in the night and Dagon fell over. So they set Dagon back up. A Par- little parenthetical thought here for another talk for another day. If you have to set your God back up, you've got the wrong God. And so they propped, their, propped him back up. But when they came back, the next day, yeah, come on. When they came back the next day, after they propped him up, he'd fallen over again. But this time, his head and his hands had been cut off. So somebody had been in there with a concrete saw during the night. And they cut the head and the hands off Dagon, thank you, angel of the Lord. And it set them on the threshold of the door. So when they came into the temple, they had to step over the head and the hands of their idol to get in to prop Dagon again. If you have to step over the head and the hands of your God to get in to prop your God up, it's a really good chance that you've got the wrong God. Okay? But they they forgot. They forgot. So they had a big celebration. And they're back in the same temple. And it says they, were in, they, they came to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, saying, this is verse 23, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Way to go, Dagon. You're so great. And when the people saw him, Samson, they praised their God, saying, again, our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied are slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. Now, I don't know exactly all how that went down. Maybe it was just him stumbling around with his eyes gouged out. And can you imagine how joyous that moment was? Because Samson, who was a man of God, had become a laughingstock for the worshipers of an idol. And they just jeered and hooped and hollered and laughed and screamed. It was the best of nights at the temple of Dagon. And Samson, the man of God, had become a laughingstock for the people. 
And I say that today because this is where it gets personal. Because if anybody's failing in these areas, then you know what I'm talking about today because you feel like your enemy is making a laughing stock out of you. And then there can come a point where you crash and burn and, and, and everybody makes a laughing stock out of you. And then there's a third thing going on today which is really difficult that maybe you weren't the person who was crazy and you weren't the person who made all the wrong decisions but it was your husband who did all that or your wife who did all that or maybe your kids did all that or your parents did all that and then you became the laughing stock for what they did. And you've been struggling somehow with the fact that that, that your eyes got gouged out and you feeling like everybody's looking at you going, yeah, that's the kid whose mom did whatever. That's the kid whose dad did whatever. That's the guy whose wife did whatever. That's the wife whose husband did whatever. And you didn't do anything, but you ended up in the same place as Samson feeling like you're now the laughing stock. And it doesn't even have to be the same thing as Samson. Sometimes just when hardship comes, when difficulty comes, when life breaks down, the enemy comes around and he makes us feel like the whole world's looking at us. He's like, I didn't do anything. I'm just trying to live life. And somehow internally you feel like the whole world is using you for their entertainment somehow because you're collateral to the damage and somehow you're part of the fray. And the one who gloats the most is, is the enemy himself. And if humans won't gloat over you, and trust me, they're pretty good at it. We have to put new rules in place in all of our professional sports to keep people from gloating over people. Not enough that I sacked you for a nine-yard loss. I'm going to slit my throat as to say, man, I'm taking you out and beat my chest and stomp on your legs and spit on you. Do a little happy dance for myself. And we're saying, yeah, no, you can't do that, man. But we're a culture that's so wounded that we love to gloat over other people's failures. And the biggest gloater of all is the one who hung the fruit low in the first place. Satan is just the lead party thrower when we fall. And he's dancing on top of some of you today. He's just dancing on you with the dance of doubt. No, don't you think you're coming back? He's dancing on you with condemnation. He's dancing on you with all kinds of shame. He's dancing on you with all sort of a ridicule, and he's saying, yeah, you, you're not going to be the comeback, so let's don't even go there, because you know that God probably really can't even bring you back, and he's sowing doubt into your life, and it's just pushing you more into the hurricane. It's pushing you more into the spiral, and every time you pray one of those little rededication prayers, which, by the way, are not in Scripture and don't work, thank you very much, and every time you pray one of those little, oh, Lord, if you'll help me this time, I'll never do this again. Well, that's never worked. That's never worked for anybody. But when you pray that little prayer, because that's a private way of dealing with the hurricane that God wants us to deal with by bringing it into the light, that little private thing won't work. And so we pray the little rededication prayer. It doesn't work. And then after you've prayed about, oh, say, a hundred of those, you give up on the possibility that God can do anything. And then, then the happy dance starts happening by the one who got you into it in the first place. And he's like, man, you are the worst. You are the worst. You are the worst. You are the worst. You are a sorry Christian. You're the sorriest Christian that ever lived. If there was a list of sorry Christians, you would be at the top of the sorry Christian list. So you might get into 515, but don't get your hopes up. And I'm here to tell you today, our God is the God of the comeback. Jesus Christ is the God of the comeback. And there is redemption, people, in the economy of God. I love how it says um, in verse 22 of chapter 16, this is pretty powerful for me. After he was put in bronze shackles and they set him to grinding in the prison, it says in verse 22, but, there's always a but in the story of God. There's always an intervening moment in the story of God. But the hair on his head began to grow again, even after it had been shaved. His little hair said, we're making a comeback. And there was a hair comeback that preceded the mercy of God and the grace of God on his life. Because what the Philistines didn't get, because remember they're worshiping a stone idol that they've had to put his head and hands back on before, so they're not catching up real fast to everything. They thought, we just shave his head, he loses all his power. They didn't know that you had to keep shaving his head for him to lose his power. And eyes gouged out, shackled up to a prison mill. His hair started growing back. 
I love the way the prophet Micah says it. In Micah 7, after Israel again had stumbled and fallen, Israel again was in a, in a deep spot, deep hole. But this is the end of Micah the prophet giving hope to the people of God. And this is Micah giving ammunition for you today and hope for you today. This is what he wrote to them, Micah, in verse 8 of Micah 7. He said, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Hello? Though I have fallen, and that's true. We're not minimizing that. I will rise. And though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. So when they drag you out to be a laughingstock and when the enemy starts doing the condemnation dance on top of you, this is your word. Do not gloat over me, my enemy, because I have fallen. We're not minimizing that. We're not, you can't, how can you minimize that to Samson? His eyes have been gouged out. He's shackled into a prison mill. I mean, you can't say, oh, well, you know, God just fixes everything and he just, you know, makes everything okay and he just kind of, oh, it's all going to be all right. No, the consequences were very real for Samson. But the reality is that even in the consequences, God is greater than the consequences. And in the story of God, redemption's coming. And the story of anybody who puts their trust, hope, believes in, and clings to Jesus for their life and salvation, they're going to rise. Oh, Satan can knock us down, but we are going to rise. And when Christ is raised up on the last day, we're going to be raised up with him. Because we've never stopped hoping, never stopped believing, never stopped clinging to him to be our life and salvation. And so the one doing the condemnation dance on your head, here's the real story. He's going down. Okay, he's going ultimately and eternally down. And he doesn't want that to be the lead story today. And so he pushes that to be the sort of the backstory. But we have scripture that tells us in Revelation 21.10 that he's thrown into the lake of fire where he is going to burn forever and ever and ever. This is the end of his story. And so he didn't want to talk about the end of his story. He wants to talk about the end of your story. And so he's going to do a condemnation dance and a shameful dance on your head saying, your story's over. Your story's over. We're going to party on top of the end of your story. And what we have to understand is, is to say, hey, I, you did knock me down. And, that, and I got to give you that. Yeah, I went for the low-hanging fruit, man. And you, you knocked my legs. You cut my heart out. But you're going into a lake of fire. And I am clinging to Jesus. And his grace is an ocean. And when he is raised, I'm going to be raised. And when he is seated at the right hand of God, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God. And I'm spending forever. Yeah, I'm going to have some scars on me because of your low-hanging fruit. But I've got a story that's bigger than you named Jesus. And when he goes up, I'm going up with him. In fact, he's lifting me up right now. He's lifting me up out of the miry clay. And he's set my feet on a rock. And he's putting a new song in my mouth. He said, because I've sinned against him, verse 9, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case. Until he pleads my case. Until God pleads my case. Yes, I've fallen. And yes, I'm sitting in darkness. But God's going to plead my case. So I don't have to judicate the whole case. I just got to cling to Jesus and then he will plead my case. Yes, I bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. Just one other passage really quickly. You don't have to turn to it. It'll come up on the screen, but this is how Jesus made this work. Colossians 2, 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and here comes the fun part, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And that's the future of our enemy. And man, there's times in my life, and I know there's times in your life where you just want to use the bad word and say, you. 
Yeah, you're taking the shots at me, but I'm telling you what, you are going to ultimately go down. So don't gloat over me, my enemy, because I may have fallen, but I'm going to rise. And I may sit in darkness, but God is my light. And he's going to plead my case through the blood of Jesus and make a public spectacle of you and triumph over you through the cross. If you're sitting in darkness today, Jesus is the light of the world. And if you have fallen today, Jesus is saying to you, you can get up. You can get up. So the hair started growing on Samson's head. And it says, when they brought him out to entertain the people, in verse 26, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women. So we're talking about a major colonnade, this place of worship. Watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. What a great prayer. Oh, sovereign Lord. What does that mean? Why is that there? I think it's there because it's Samson showing us how to pray. Yes, the circumstances went off the rail. Yes, everything's gone haywire. Yes, I've abandoned the calling you put on my life. Yes, I've gotten myself into a predicament, but you're still sovereign. That means that the story of my life isn't the end of my life because there's a sovereign God over the story of my life that can still make something amazing out of my life. He said, oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Isn't that what the thief on the cross prayed in our first comeback story? Remember me. Oh, God, please strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And he reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, and he braced himself against them, his right hand on one and his left on the other, and he said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might. And God was on him again. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. In the last gasp, God's power came on Samson and he came back the little footnote is is that when all the rulers of the Philistines bad idea we have segregation of powers you know and you're not supposed to get all the rulers in one building when all the rulers were in this place when the temple fell meaning that the deliverance of Israel from under the rulers of the Philistines came on the day that Samson had to come back what he had not done in his lifetime, he did in his death. Because even as messy as it was in the middle, our God is the God of the comeback.